Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the youth, the youth this morning. Why don't we, uh, let's open in a word of prayer and we'll start Sunday school this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we are in awe of you this morning, Father. Um, we're thankful, uh, God, for your mercies, which are new each and every morning, Father. Uh, we pray that you bless this time. Um, in Sunday school, Father, that uh, as we learn more about you and your attributes, Father, um, we just commit this time to you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. in Portland, Maine, where Edward Payson's extraordinary communion with God through prayer earned him the nickname Praying Payson of Portland. Drawing near to the living God in prayer is not an effortless exercise for a true Christian. It is a habit of soul that flows from greater realities than our personal determination to pray better. Today we will consider three of those realities that form the heart of Edward Payson's communion with God. The first of these has to do with the way that Payson viewed himself. Perhaps one of his own illustrations will help us here. He told his people, you cannot make a rich man beg like a poor man. You cannot make a man that is full cry for food like one that is hungry. No more will a man with a good opinion of himself cry for mercy like one who feels that he is poor and needy. Edward Payson was keenly aware of his spiritual poverty and weakness and this continually moved him to go to the only one that could help. Listen to these entries from his journal. July 20th, overwhelmed, sunk, discouraged with a sense of sin. All efforts seem to be in vain. Discoveries of my vileness, instead of humbling me, as might be expected, only excited discouragement and unbelief. While the manifestations of God's love only make me proud and careless, my wretched soul cleaves to the dust. And again, two days later, he writes, Oh, what a dreadful, what an inconceivable abyss of corruption dwells in my heart. What an amazing degree of pride and vanity, of selfishness and envy does it contain. One fact which strikes us as we read Payson's journal is that his seasons of prayer and fasting were not limited to times of extraordinary events or emergencies. They were the normal pattern of his life because he was continually confronted with his great need of God.
That brings us to another reality which led to Payson's unusual prayer life. It was his biblical view of God. We need to seriously face some questions. If Edward Payson was known for his holy life, how then can he write the way he does about his sinfulness? If he was such a godly pastor, why was he so constantly talking about his spiritual weakness? The answer lies in his understanding of God. Payson intentionally viewed himself in the light of God's majesty. He searched his Bible for the clearest views of God, often spending 12 hours a day in his study. The knowledge of God's majesty fueled his prayers. Payson wrote, God, how much this title implies, no tongue, human or angelic, can express. It is a book made up of an infinite number of pages, and every page full of meaning. It will be read by saints and angels through the ages of eternity, but they will never reach the end, nor fully comprehend the meaning of a single page. Listen to the following excerpts from his letters. In one he writes, What ought to be the feelings of a sinful worm of the dust when the Father of lights, who dwells in the high and holy place and in the contrite heart, stoops from his awful throne to visit him, to smile upon him, to pardon him, to purify him from his moral defilement, to adopt him as a child, and to make him an heir of heaven. In another we read, With what profound veneration does it become us to enter his presence and to receive the favors of the awful majesty of heaven and earth. The awful majesty of heaven and earth. That is how Payson views the God he meets in prayer. This is the section of the city known as the Old Port, and two blocks from here is the original location of Payson's church, which was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1866. I want us to think now about the third reality, which was at the heart of Payson's nearness to God, his understanding of the mediating work of Jesus Christ. Payson knew in order for him to draw near to God, it was not enough to be aware of his own weakness and God's greatness. He needed a way to guarantee a favorable reception into God's presence. Without that hope, why would anyone pray? Payson believed that he would be heard because of the work of Jesus on his behalf. He understood that it was only Christ's righteousness received through a living union with the Savior that gave him favor with God. When Payson considered the fullness of God's provision in the gospel, he wrote, is it any wonder that those who behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ should be sweetly drawn to him? When he first entered the ministry, Payson made a covenant between himself and God. It contains a prayer in which he says to God, Thou, thou art he who blots out our iniquities for thine own sake and will not remember our sins against us. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin, and to this would I flee for refuge. In him do I put my trust. Let me plead before thee the merits of thy Son, and put thee in mind of thy gracious promises. Payson understood that only by pleading before God the merits of Jesus could he draw near. How do we explain Edward Payson? Student of scripture, man of prayer, godly father, effective minister. The answer can be found in an ordinary entry in his journal. He writes about leading his family in worship. Here is how he describes it. In family prayer, 
was most unusually drawn out towards God. All earthly objects were swallowed up. Self appeared to be nothing and God to be all in all. This week, you have another opportunity to see the God who is all in all and to see yourself as nothing. Nearly 2,000 years ago, at a gathering of religious experts, Jesus asked this simple question, what do you think about the Christ? After a week of studying the goodness of God, His benevolence, His patience, His humility, it's a very important question for us. As soon as the question is asked, I think that every person feels that there's a struggle that ensues. The hypocrite feels the struggle of making their weak admiration of Christ seem like full-blown love. But the true Christian struggles to find words to express the inexpressible. Later, after his crucifixion and the resurrection, Christ asked another significant question. This time it was directed to Peter. Peter, he asked, do you love me? I wonder if we realize how unimportant other questions really are in comparison with these. Not what do you think of your church or what do you think of that preacher, what do you think of a particular doctrine or a style of worship, but what do you think, really think, of the person of Jesus Christ? Not do you love your church, do you love your Bible studies, your small groups, do you love the blessings that God gives you, but do you love this person, Jesus? What is the chief command that we've been given? You remember, right? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our whole being. So the fundamental expression of sin is not murder, lust, or greed, but it is the unwillingness, the refusal to give God love. Shocking thing that we see in life is that not everyone who talks about Christ, not everyone who teaches about Christ, studies about Christ, really loves Christ. This is clearly demonstrated when Christ came to earth, and John tells us that when Christ came to his own, the Jews, the Jews did not receive him. Rather than love him, they accused him of being a liar or a fraud, a blasphemer. Jesus said of the religious leaders of his day that their mouths were close to him, but their hearts were far from him. So that's a good place to ask ourselves that question. When it comes to loving the person of Jesus Christ, think, where is your mouth? What, what do you say about Christ when someone asks you, do you love him? When someone asks you, why do you go to church? Where is your mouth? But more importantly, where is the heart? Religions all have distinguishing marks, and certainly there are common elements in religion, in all the world religions, there would be rules and sacrifices, prayers or songs. But what is the distinguishing mark of Christianity? It is love to the person, Jesus Christ. So we could say that in a very simple way, the Christian creed is, for me, there is none like Christ. There is none but Christ. 
When Paul finished his first letter to the Corinthians, he ended it with these shocking words. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, he writes, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, or come Lord. Now that's a terrifying statement when you consider who wrote it. It comes from the pen of a man that daily risked his life to bring the gospel to people he'd never met. It's a man that tells us that he would be willing to be accursed, to be damned by God, to be separated from the love of God, if only the Jews would embrace their Messiah. Here is a man that loves the souls of men, and yet, knowing the value of Christ, he writes to the Corinthians and he warns them, if anyone does not love this Lord Jesus, let them be accursed. Now let's stop and look at this short statement here. Who is Paul talking to? Well, he says, if anyone, it's a universal statement. It applies to everyone in all times and all places, but in particular, it is written to people in a church. Any church member in any denomination, in any church, in any town, in any nation, at any point in history, if they will not give their love to the person, Jesus Christ, they are to be accursed. He describes those as people who won't love Christ, that is, phileo. Now, Paul doesn't use the greatest word of love, agape. He doesn't use the pinnacle. He just uses a common word. If you will not love Christ, even with a common love, you're to be accursed. I think one of the things that this does for us is to show us that Paul is not saying, I'm talking about weak love and strong love. So if you have weak love for Christ, you're in trouble. But if you have strong love for Christ, you're okay. He's talking about no love and love. The consequence of not loving Christ is that they would be cursed or that they would be an anathema. Now this word is used in the Old Testament of things that were consecrated, an animal that was consecrated as a sacrifice. So it was devoted to destruction or of someone who was set apart for divine wrath. This word appears 12 times in Deuteronomy 27, where Moses gives a list of sins which are so heinous, so polluting, that a person would have to be put to death. Sins like the sin of secretly hiding and attacking a neighbor who trusted you, of cruelty to the blind, of cheating widows, of making idols, as well as a list of the more extreme sexual sins. Paul takes that word and says, if you are in a church and you have everything in a row, every, on the outside, it's, it looks good. But in the heart, you will not love Jesus Christ. You are to be accursed. It is certainly a severe warning against nominal Christianity. But what is love? And do we really have it for Christ now, we want to be careful. There are, of course, many counterfeits to love for Christ. So how does the Bible define love? How does the Bible define love to Christ? Maybe a very simple definition of love could be this. Love is the esteem and the delight that you have for an object, for a person. And that love, that esteem, that delight reflects the value that you put on that. 
So you can place too much love on inferior objects. Love's appropriateness could be measured by the worth of the object. So if you have great love for a thing of great value, then that's appropriate. But when we come to describing love for Christ, because he is the incomparable one, chief among 10,000, altogether lovely, none like him, then for the believer, though our love is imperfect, we owe him a love that is unlike any other love, an incomparable love. It ought to be unrivaled and supreme. What does love to Christ look like? Well, ultimately, a lack of love for Jesus Christ will be displayed when in the judgment Christ damns. But Paul is merciful and he warns the church, if you will not love Christ, you will be accursed. So it's wise to search the scriptures now and and then to look back into our own lives and ask ourselves, do I have the kind of love that the Bible describes a Christian having for Christ? And again, we're not looking for perfect love. Every Christian would look at their own soul and would grieve that the love we give Christ is less than what we wish to give him, less than what he deserves. But is there the real existence of love? Well, let's look at some biblical descriptions of the kind of love that we need. First, real love to Christ is always more than words. It includes words, but it's more than that. It has to have a heartfelt obedience. Listen to these passages. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Even the love of friendship between the sinner and Christ requires this obedience. John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So when we look at our sentiment for Christ, our feelings for Christ, we have to ask ourselves, do my feelings for Jesus Christ ultimately produce a new loyalty, a new allegiance? Is it the kind of love that moves me to obey Second, real love for Christ is more than just keeping rules. Now, we mentioned rule keeping, but it's more than rule keeping, isn't it? It includes a longing to be with Christ, to spend time with Christ. Now, I suppose that we see this in human relationships. It's so obvious, it hardly needs explaining, but people that love each other like to spend time with each other. Paul has given us a clue to this in this passage. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then there's this word, Maranatha, which translated means, Oh, come, Lord. It's a prayer. The Christian longs for the nearness of Christ. Now, there is the ultimate coming. So we can say one of the evidences of loving Jesus Christ is that we do look forward to the day that we will see him face to face when he receives all the glory due to him when he is clothed with the splendor that he had before the creation of the earth. We see him, we love him, and there's no interference of sin in our own soul. So there is that ultimate longing, come, Lord Jesus. But there is the daily yearning, come today, come often, come quickly, 
seasons of grace. We could call them royal visits when the Christian, in a very simple and childlike way, opens up the scripture and bows their heart before their king. And God meets us in his word where we're able to walk with God throughout the day. And there is an experiential understanding that he is ours and we are his. That's always been the desire of the believer. Think of Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Again in verse 8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Such a simple test, isn't it? Do you love Christ? Well, do you look forward to spending time alone with him? Do you look forward to gathering with other believers and meeting him? Do you make plans daily so that you'll have time for him, no matter how busy the life is? Do you look forward to special seasons where in your schedule there's, there's a portion of time that is open and you know it's coming and you say to yourself, well, there are a lot of things I could do with that, but I think I'll spend time alone with the Lord. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, wrote a hymn with this opening line, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Does that kind of language confuse you? Because you're satisfied with the name of a Christian and the promise of heaven and the longing for the nearness of Christ. It's not part of your life. And so you don't understand why Newton would say that life is tedious and tasteless when you don't have an, an experiential awareness of Christ. Ask yourself, are you slow to come to the scriptures? Are you quick to leave them? Are you satisfied with a distant Jesus? So if we are satisfied to perform our Christian duties and to keep the rules, but you don't yearn for time alone with Christ, if you don't yearn to meet with him, with other believers, then I think we would have to say, we do not love the Jesus that Paul's talking about. A third evidence, real love to Christ means loving Christ's family. Now, this is not always the case in human relationships. A boy falls in love with a girl, he doesn't necessarily fall in love with her family. He may not even like her family. But in the kingdom of Christ, the work of God in the soul guarantees that every Christian loves God and loves other Christians. This is so essential to Christianity that when John in his first epistle gives three major tests of being a Christian, new belief system, new loyalty, and new love, he spends a great deal of time talking about this new love and he talks about it on the horizontal plane, how you love other Christians. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In 1 John 3 verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Spiritually, you're still dead, not a Christian. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So, again, let's stop and look at our own souls. I say I love Christ, but do I love Christians? Now, be careful. We don't mean you enjoy hanging out with Christians that you have a lot in common with other than Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, what is it about Christians that you like so much? Is it because you have children the same age, you're going through the same experiences as a parent or maybe as a grandparent? You go to the same school, you like the same sports teams, same education, same kind of job? Or is it that you love what you see of Christ in them? You recognize your Savior in them. There's a family likeness, and you're drawn to that. Another, real love to Christ. It involves the whole of you for the whole of Him. Now, again, we're not talking about perfect love. But we're saying this, that when we love Jesus Christ, it will be with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just emotions, but there will be emotions. Not just intellect, but the intellect will be captivated. Not just doing things, but there will be doing things. So the whole of me, the whole of you, it's a universal thing. This love to Christ, you can't hold it in one spot. It spreads to all of life. It's not perfect, but it spreads to all of life. It influences everything. The whole of Christ. The Christian is not satisfied to pick and choose aspects of Christ, to kind of love him in slices. We don't compartmentalize him and say, well, I really admire these things, but I don't understand why he's this way. I don't really like this, but I do like this. Christian, you admire all of Christ's works. Think about it. His comforting as well as his judging, helping as well as opposing, pardoning as well as condemning. Do you love all of Christ's character? It's very easy to adjust Jesus, to make him and fashion him in our minds so that he fits our present lifestyle. And then naturally, you love the Jesus that you fashioned. And you tell yourself, I pass Paul's test. But you will still be accursed if the Jesus you love is the Jesus you fashioned. Now that is a very present danger in our day when churches spend so much time talking about things that perhaps we feel are more practical, how to reach the lost, how to grow the church, how to help the family, how to promote healthy marriages. It seems that we talk a lot about what Jesus gives us, what, what he can offer, what the promises that are there for us. And those are all wonderful things. But we've passed over the subject of Christ himself. And too often, we quickly move over the person of Christ and talk about the benefits of Christ. Now, if that's the case, where you go to church, then you understand that, it, that there is a great danger that you will not realize if you begin to fashion Christ in your image, there's not much at church to expose that. It's very dangerous to be careless 
with which Christ we're loving. Now, when Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, he's not saying that this is how you earn God's forgiveness. You love him. Well, that's not the way it works. John says we love him because he first loved us. But it is essential to a Christian. It is, it is our nature that because of the work of God within the new birth, through the Holy Spirit, we cannot help but find Christ to be chief among 10,000, right? Altogether lovely. It is impossible to be brought by the work of the Spirit into contact with Christ. It is impossible to believe Christ, to know Christ, to experience the saving kindnesses of Christ, and not also to love Christ. Perhaps we should stop and stir ourselves. This week you studied the goodness of God, the benevolence, the kindness, the patience. Think of the goodness of God and how it calls forth from the heart love. It is an independent goodness, we say. That is, God's goodness is self-existing. It is not based on anyone or anything outside of himself. Your Christ is infinitely, self-existingly good. Well, I mentioned infinity. It's incomprehensible. His goodness cannot be added to. It cannot be reduced. It cannot be measured. It cannot be adequately described. It is an immutable or unchangeable goodness. Christ's goodness cannot be amended or altered or adjusted in any way. Christ's goodness is timeless and ever-present. In every moment of human history, every generation of humanity, Christ is good. In every square foot of the universe, wherever you go, Christ is there and Christ is morally perfect. It's a sovereign and all-powerful goodness. Unlike the kindness of the best of people that we know, Christ's goodness, His kindness, His benevolence, His moral perfection is united to all power. He will do all His goodness desires to do. And it is also united to sovereignty, to all the rights. He has the right to be good, to exercise His goodness, His kindness when... And where he chooses. It is a holy and righteous goodness. The moral perfections of Jesus Christ. The kindnesses. The benevolence. The humility. Whatever you want to put in that category. It can never be polluted. It can never be morally bent or shifted. It is a faithful and patient goodness that will endure to the end. No matter how many times the believer comes before the Lord, he is still the good Lord. And he will not prove unfaithful, even when we're unfaithful. Now ask yourself, after all that you've studied this week of the goodness of God, do you see that not loving this Christ is the height of spiritual insanity? It's madness. It's a person who is blinded to the most beautiful of beings. A person who is cold in front of a blazing fire. Deaf to the most charming of voices. Unresponsive. Well, what do we do? Well, for those of you that are not sure about your love, there is hope. Paul has written this so that you could read it. 
so that you could examine yourself by the help of God so you can do something about it. Go to God. He is the Savior of sinners. And bring your cold, unloving heart and lay it before Him. Don't present any excuses. Don't justify yourself. Don't explain to God why you don't love Him the way you ought to love Him. Just lay it before Him and see it as He sees it, the chief of sins. Take your loveless heart to Him and beg Him that He would, for His glory, do in you what only He can do, that He would give you a new heart. That the most basic and fundamental quality in your life from that point forward would be that you love Jesus of Nazareth. That that would be the distinguishing mark of your life. You might be described in many ways. What kind of family you come from, where you work, what kind of education. But that from that point forward, the identity that will never change is this. There is a man, there's a woman, that's a child that loves Christ. Christian, loving Christ comes naturally. That is, it's part of our new spiritual nature. But it does not come effortlessly. You can lose the first love. You can become cold and indifferent toward the God who has never been indifferent toward you. How do you increase your love for Christ? Well, the good news is that Jesus is really altogether lovely. There are people that the better we get to know them, the less we like them. But no believer can study Christ humbly, depending on God, and not increase in love for Him. Stay close to the King. Be often with the King. Cling to Him. Study His perfections. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish preacher, wrote from prison to people who said that they were spiritually cold. And he said, you're hiding in the shadows and you're complaining of being spiritually cold. The cure is get out into the sunlight of Christ. Study from Genesis to Revelation the descriptions of your Lord, who he is and what he's done until you find your heart continually melted. And as you study, let Paul's prayer be yours. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Visit my soul again. Let's pray. God, we pray for the glory of Jesus in our day, that his goodness would move us to love him. And though our love will always be less than he deserves, even less than we wish to give, God, we do love him because he first loved us. So we pray, give us grace to be careful and to cultivate that. In Christ's name, amen. In a nutshell, what we have in the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as portrayed in the Gospels is, is the good God walking on two feet in our own world. So there's now no excuse for us saying we don't know what love looks like. Love walked among us. I actually think that the love of God uh, 
also contains great terror for the unbeliever, and the unbeliever manifests this. I mean, it's, it's very interesting how, you know, how many people will say to you when they discover that you're a Christian, and if you're a, if you're a biblical Christian, and there are elements of the biblical gospel that they despise and hate, they'll, they'll say, well, the God I believe in is a God of love. And that, you know, in, in pastoral life, I've often said to people, you need to find a gracious way of saying to them, you're actually lying through your teeth. Because everything that you do and say, the way that you deport yourself in your whole life, tells me that this love of God is something that you fear. Otherwise, you would embrace Him. Um, I think in my own life, to, just to give an analogy, um, you know, I've had schoolmasters who have corrected me, but I have had people that I think have loved me so intensely, wanting the best for me, that when I have not wanted that best, I've wanted to run away. And I do believe that for the unbeliever, it isn't just a part of God that makes them run away. It's, it's the whole of God, and that includes his love. And when we think of the love that God has shown us as creatures, I mean, giving us existence, making the sun shine on us and the rain fall on us, and then we think of how we all, by nature, treat him, our grasp of his love and its greatness and, and in particular, the way in which his love manifests towards us as compassion and mercy, which I think are aspects of his love, um, must deepen our conviction of how sinful we are for the way that we disobey him and reject him um, and, and deny that love. To be loved with an everlasting love, to consider that in all the depth of my wickedness and unloveliness, that God, that the, the eternal God set his love upon me and that having loved me from before the foundation of the world, that he will never cease to love me. That when, when heaven rolls in, when Christ returns, when eternity future dawns, if I can confuse categories in that way, that there will never be any point in an undying existence of an immortal soul married again to a glorified body in which I am not the object of the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that everything that God is toward me, he always has been, so that those mercies cannot cease. And I think that's probably what makes that so, so sweet to the believer. The only unforgivable sin is to refuse and defy the offers of redemption and mercy and forgiveness that there are in Jesus Christ. All sin, however horrendous it is, is confronted by the infinite love of God. Where sin abounds, grace, because it's infinite, is much more abundant. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse 
within. So um, the, the one thing the devil will say to us is that our sins are infinite, that uh, these sins are ours now, the hurt we've caused, the guilt we feel is so enormous that there is no possibility of uh, deliverance from them. Ah, but uh, these sins, we set them down in the light of the infinite kindness and goodness of a God who is more willing to forgive men their sins than men are to humble themselves and ask him for mercy. I was reminded of an old hymn, um, one that we're actually doing today, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. And, and another hymn at the end came up, uh, came to my mind, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. No matter, I mean, to me, that was just an amazing lyric. Uh, we could never fully express the love of God that he's set upon us by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, you are holy, holy, holy. Uh, we are in awe of you this morning, Father, and we we thank you for setting your love upon us, for sending your son Jesus uh, to be the propitiation for our sins, Father. Um, we love you only because you first loved us. Um, Lord, stir our affections for you this morning. Stir our affections for you um, as we uh, prepare to worship through singing, through prayer, and through the word, Father. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.